There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Tuesday morning, uh, the 6th of November, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The British government will be updated today on progress in the Brexit negotiations. Theresa May will tell the Cabinet that she spoke to Leo Bradker by telephone yesterday. The Prime Minister will outline how the Taoiseach rejected the idea of a temporary backstop. The backstop agreed last December means Northern Ireland will stay in the Customs Union unless or until a border solution is agreed. There was speculation in the UK this weekend that this could be overcome by putting in place a UK-wide backstop, which the UK could withdraw from by giving three months' notice of its intention. So what now? Well, let's talk about this with Matt Carthy, a member of the European Parliament for Sinn Féin. Good morning, Matt, and thanks for joining us. This would seem to be down to the wire now, and if Brexit is to happen on the 29th of March, March, May must get the backing of her cabinet today and reach an agreement with the other 27 European countries by the end of this month. Uh, Good morning, Michael. Yes, Brexit has to happen by the end of March. That much we know, or at least some form of it needs to to have um, been been progressed. I'm not convinced that we're going to see um, uh, an agreement this week. If we were to have a November summit, for example, we would absolutely need um, a movement from the part of the British this week. We still have the fundamental problem that you and I have discussed going back since almost the very moment that the British voted um, to leave, and that is that their fundamental positions are unclear and contradictory, and we have the situation still whereby Tory cabinet ministers are briefing the media against each other. So this week I think we've seen the bizarre situation where the British government, and particularly Dominic Raab, has put forward um, the position to that the British will be able to leave the backstop unilaterally with a three-month notice. Mm. Um, that, by any definition, is not a backstop. Um, it's a back delay, to quote the, the Taoiseach. There does appear to be some within the British government who are a little bit more realistic, but it seems to me that the British strategy that I think many of us suspected from the outset, and particularly since the December communique of last year, was that their position and that their strategy was to delay, frustrate and prolong the negotiations, bring them down to the bottom line in the hope that there would be some movement on the part of the EU or especially the Irish government. And I think that's where the focus is now Mm is now on. Um, I would have concerns, I have to say, about the position of the Irish government to open up the discussions around a review mechanism for the backstop because all the evidence has shown us from last year that the British government have tried to frustrate and undermine that backstop provision. Let's not forget that they actually signed up to a legal agre- or to a political agreement mm. last December. 
but they said very clearly that there would be mechanisms in place to ensure that the north of Ireland remained essentially part of the country. But how, how concerned are you? Uh, Fianna Fáil has been very strong on this and they're suggesting a, a change in tack and kind of a, a watering down of the Irish position. Is that the Sinn Féin view as well? Because the government is saying the opposite. We're giving them wriggle room as such seems to be the position that the Taoiseach is taking and that there will be no scope for withdrawing from the backstop unless or until a solution is found? See, the fundamental problem with all of this, Michael, is that the British, as I say, politically agreed to the notion and to the principle of a backstop, but immediately afterwards almost have Mm. been trying to frustrate and um, water down that provision. So they have not at this stage agreed to what a a backstop would legally um, mean and how it would be legally enforced. And the difficulty... But do you accept that that the government has not changed its position on what a backstop means? I think there's certainly the Irish government have been strong up until this point from the moment that they changed their position. You have to remember... Okay, and this is because the Taoiseach has said he's open to a review of the backstop if the backstop is ever used. The hope is that the backstop will never be necessary. Fianna Fáil is saying that that's a watering down of the government's position. What's the Sinn Féin position on it? No, what we're saying is that we cannot enter into a negotiation, in term, a negotiation in terms of any potential review of the backstop until the British government have actually agreed to legal parameters as to what the backstop is. And that's why I would have a fear. Mm. And that's in, that, that is in line with the Irish government's position, though, isn't it? No, well, the problem has been is that... Patricia has said he's open to it when he hears uh, the British government's proposals. Yes, and the difficulty has been that we're waiting since last December to hear realistic proposals from Mm. the British government. And that's why I think it's so important, because it's my view, it's my considered view, having talked to the negotiators here at the European level and just listened to the discourse at an EU level, that the EU is willing to hold firm in relation to the Irish position regarding the backstop. Now, that's hugely important and would have been a concern that many of us would have had earlier on. Mm. The caveat to that is that they're willing to hold firm for so long and until the Irish government are willing to hold firm. And the British clearly see that that is the position and they've clearly decided now to try and exert pressure on the Irish government to shift its position. And my fear would be is that any indication or inclination on the part of an Irish government that it's open to a review or open to a reconsideration at any level whatsoever, even if if at some undefined point in the future, that the British government will bank that and try and undermine it. Okay, and the problem with all of this has been how do you sell it to unionists? Uh, And there was uh, the original agreement of a backstop for Northern Ireland, that Northern Ireland would stay in the customs union unless or until uh, a solution to the border was discovered and put in place and agreed and so on. Uh, and because uh, that meant Northern Ireland was leaving uh, the European Union uh, in a, a different way than the rest of the United Kingdom, it was suggested that there be a two-tier backstop. That backstop that was already agreed for Northern Ireland and a second one for the rest of the UK, but that would be a, a temporary position. Uh, and there's a, another proposal that is being uh, made now by some of the British Brexiteers, and that's for a, a British Isles-wide backstop to be put in place so that Ireland would be aligned to the United Kingdom. The Republic would be aligned to the United Kingdom. That would work, wouldn't it? First of all, on the outside, I think we can overstate the need to 
um, um, to accommodate what you call unionists, what people are referring to in this conversation. Okay, the DUP. Unionists is the DUP. Okay. The DUP mm. are one party in the North. They're an important party. They're the largest party. Well, they're a very important party as far as Mrs May is concerned. The only party well, that matters as far as she's concerned. They don't represent the majority of people in the North who very clearly voted to remain part of the European Union and a large proportion of those people who voted to um, remain part of the EU did indeed come from the unionist community. So let's not allow one political party who has its own ideological position that would, if enacted, actually impact negatively as much on their voters as they would on Sinn Féin voters, um, unionist farmers, unionist businesses, unionist communities face to lose as much from a bad Brexit deal as Sinn Féin and um, um, people from those um, categories. So I do think it's um, um, I do think we need to be mindful of the DUP position, but I don't think we should be uh, we, we should be dictated to mm. by it. In relation to a so-called Isles, you know, and mm. I don't like the term British Isles for obvious obvious reasons. I don't consider Ireland to be British, um, and, but I do think that that's symbolic of the positioning and the regard that t- Tory Brexiteers have for the island of Ireland, North and South. They still consider us their colony. They still cannot understand why it is that we're not dancing to their tune, even though they don't even know exactly what their tune is, um, but they expect us to row in behind it. It's quite clear that there is a solution to the issues um, that pertain to the North-South relationship, and that is that the North has a special status. That is effectively at a minimum, that the backstop is enforced. That means that the North remains part of the customs union. I think we need to go further than that in relation to the single market and in relation to key policy areas regarding EU policy, like CAP, for example. Anything else, any deviation from all of those things, and the backstop allows for significant deviation on all of those things, let's remember, will impact um, economically, politically, and socially on all of us in, in, in on the island of Ireland, North and South. And that's and a very unfortunate and high price that we have to pay for decisions that other, others made, particularly in England. And when we couple that with a position of a British government that is, as I say, contradictory, um, unclear in, the, in mm. the most part, then I would have a huge fear, I have to say, for the next number of months. Because what I think will end up happening, and this is my own prediction, but I hope I'm proven wrong, is that at the last minute, some fudge of a deal will be agreed where many of the outstanding issues will be prolonged into the the transition period for negotiation. But you don't think it'll be this one? I I mean, this idea of a British Isles-wide backstop is, in effect, suggesting uh, reunification of the British Isles into the United Kingdom, isn't it? Yeah, it's probably trying to go back. And many people within Britain, you know, still don't understand why the Irish people would have had a desire to be independent from, from them and the irony in terms of their own rhetoric. with regard to Brexit isn't lost on anybody. But the truth of the matter is, I think there is a stronger argument than ever and a stronger realisation than ever that Irish unity makes sense. But Irish unity as an independent state, as opposed to under the jurisdiction of the British Empire, which, of course, Mm. um, to many people who advocated for Brexit. But that that is kind of the point, isn't it? I I mean, the British Isles wide solution is as workable, probably, as an Ireland island wide solution uh, that you've a united Ireland, in other words, or a reunited United Kingdom, uh, if you want to put it that way, uh, that there would be a solution for Great Britain and Ireland, North and South. I think we've been there, Michael. No, we, oh no, no, but what it's like, we know. Yeah, it's so, like so, so, rule. I don't so what about the other one then? What about the United Ireland one? 
Well, in relation to a united Ireland, it makes sense on every level. And lots of people here in the European Parliament say to me, even just looking at a map of Ireland isn't the obvious solution to all of these problems, um, uh, reunified Ireland. And absolutely that is the case. But in terms of Sinn Féin's position, we recognising that a large proportion of the people who voted to remain part of the EU didn't come from the position or have yet to be convinced of the merits of a united Ireland. We put forward a middle way, which was special status, which has in effect become EU policy in no small part as a result of the lobbying that we have been doing. To many, they look on with bewilderment at the position of the DUP in particular, that they have refused to grasp that opportunity, which in many ways would allow Ireland and particularly the North to have a unique position in the world in that it would continue to have market access to both the EU and to the British markets. It would be the only place in the world that would have those unfettered accesses. And the fact that the DUP have rubbished that claim and have not only um, dismissed it, but have actively campaigned against it, just, I think, shows to them, um, shows to many their own ideological um, driven position, which is working contrary to the best interests of the people who even vote for them. What do you think the fudge is going to be? You said that the solution will be a fudge. Uh, what do you think in reality it will be? Will it be that uh, the British Prime Minister will uh, agree to remain in Europe and call it Brexit somehow? Yeah, I think to a degree, but there will be divergence and there will be scope for greater divergence in the years to come. And that's what my fear is, is that in 10 or 15 years, we will have paid an economic and a political and a social price for Brexit, but that the distance lag will have been insufficient enough that people won't make the correlation between the negative implications and the actual outworkings of Brexit itself. And I think that would be the worst of all worlds, um, to be quite frank about it. What I think we need to have in place now are the protections so that we can ensure that we can not only maintain the all-Ireland and cross-border development and economic progress that we've made, but actually enhance it and accelerate it because we know that we're too small of a country to have a situation where farmers, for example, are competing against each other on price or where we revert to the position where on every border crossing we have two petrol stations on either side um, and one of which closes down depending on the economic circumstances of the time only for the position to be reversed or where we have um, businesses that cannot plan more than a year ahead because they don't know what the currency fluctuations, what the British government's policy positions are going to be at any given time. And all of that leads to instability and leads to economic stagnation. And the people who will suffer most in that regard are the people across the island, but especially those who live in the border region. Right. And what about the rights of nationalists in Northern Ireland? A two-page ad was taken out in the Irish News uh, this week, signed by a thousand people calling on uh, the Taoiseach uh, to protect the rights of Irish citizens north of the border and pointing to Brexit as uh, being a significant obstacle uh, that the Taoiseach uh, is working well in terms of that sense, uh, but that the impasse at Stormount uh, is meaning that people are in the position that they have no real way of determining their own future. Yeah, and the Taoiseach himself said in the early part of this year that Northern nationalists would never again be um, left aside or ignored or forgotten by an Irish government. I think that was an important statement with regard to it was an acceptance that Irish government have in the past ignored and forgotten 
those people. I think this week's letter is very welcome because it sets out very clearly in terms, in political terms, why it is that we need the Irish government to become a voice for all Irish people, including those living in the north. And with regard to to Brexit, you know, the backstop doesn't mm. include the rights of citizens. For example, everybody in the north is entitled to Irish citizenship. That means that they're in, in effect. EU citizens. Um, unfortunately, the Irish government fell at its first um, opportunity to put into action the words of the Taoiseach when they hadn't made any provision for the people of the North to, for example, to be um, part of electing MEPs next year. Mm. would have been very simple for um, the two additional seats that were coming to the southern state to be allocated to the North. The Fine Gael government didn't take that opportunity. I think that was a mistake and I think that's what, um, in part, has led to these people, as you say, coming from all backgrounds, people who are experts in their fields, people who have built up reputations. They're as Irish as you and me. They happen to live on the other side of the border and they're entitled to ask the Irish government to defend their rights, particularly when we're dealing with a situation where we have this um, coupling of a Brexit scenario that is extremely um, worrying and where you have a position that the Northern Assembly isn't in place Mm. because the DUP are using the veto allowed to them by the petition of concern to deny them their rights. And the big political question that they're asking is over partition. We've been speaking this morning hypothetically and very hypothetically at that uh, about the Republic uh, re-entering the United Kingdom or an all-Ireland island of Ireland. Uh, but this letter says that there's very real potential that partition could be reinforced and that our country and our people further divided. This is a source of grave concern to all of us. Is it a, a source of grave concern to you, Matt Carthy? Absolutely. Partition has failed our country. It has prevented us as a people from reaching our full potential. And I think um, the outworkings of Brexit have undermined fundamentally the undemocratic nature of partition itself, having listened for decades to British governments telling us there could be no constitutional change to the status of the North unless the majority of people um, voted in line with that change. And yet the British government are proposing exactly that, a massive um, constitutional change by removing the North from the EU despite the fact that the majority of the people there voted to to remain. So obviously there is a concern that partition would be um, reinforced, that there would be some form of physical manifestations of the border. Um, on the flip side of that, I think what we've seen over the past couple of years has been a reawakening of the debate around the United Ireland. We haven't got to the point where we're seriously um, planning and putting in place the mechanisms where we can ask and answer the question as to what uh, exactly United Ireland will look like. Unfortunately, Fianna Fáil in particular, but also Fianna Gael, have refused to even engage in that type of a debate so we can set out the framework and the parameters for what a United Ireland will look like. And it's my view that over the next short while, much quicker than many people realise, we are going to be faced with a situation where people will be asked to vote in relation to what a United Ireland will look like. In my view, we should have those questions answered beforehand. Um, and that means that all of us who aspire to see United Ireland, who want to see United Ireland, we should be coming together, sitting around the table, perhaps in an Oireachtas All-Party Committee, and actually setting out what the constitutional, the political and the economic framework, what the transition processes and steps will be in terms of what a United Ireland will look like so that we have the groundwork done so that when we go to the people and ask them to vote in relation to a United Ireland, they will have the confidence mm-hmm. of knowing what it is that they're being asked to vote on. All right. Look, thanks uh, for joining us uh, this morning, as Thank always. You, Sinn Féin MEP Matt Carthy. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
Uh, the ICSA is uh, calling on uh, the government uh, to take steps uh, that would prevent uh, distressed loans being sold to vulture funds. Seamus Sherlock, Rural Development Chairman with the ICSA, is on the line to tell us why. Why, Seamus? Good morning, Michael. Um, unfortunately, we now live in a, in a, in a place in, in Ireland where a lot, many, many farm families are facing the threat of being sold to vulture funds. And our experience of trying to deal with these funds is very negative. They're absolutely not interested in keeping farmland as a family farm. They're just interested in profit. Well, quite often they're interested in uh, the people uh, who uh, would profit from it, uh, and that would be the likes of pension funds uh, and uh, other groups like that. Well, look, at, at the end of the day, you know, we, we, we are a rural country. We, farmers are the backbone, as far as mm. they're concerned, of the country. And farmers have been very honourable all their lives. In the last few years, due to inclement weather and very poor prices, especially in the beef and sheep trade, Many, many farmers have found themselves that they were finding it very difficult to meet the repayments to their loans. And unfortunately, instead of those loans being restructured over a longer term, a lot of them have found that they've been handed over to these funds. Mm, well, people have fallen on hard times, there's no doubt about that. But their rights haven't changed in the interim. Uh, even if their loan is sold on uh, to another institution or an institution that would be described as a, a vulture fund, you still have the same contract and the same rights that go with it. Well, unfortunately, I think that's just that's, that's just a myth because um, as far as we're concerned anyway, any farmer that finds themselves in the grip of a vulture fund seems to have very little rights. You know, it's, it's unbelievable, actually. You have to be dealing with these people to understand how, how really dangerous they are. I mean, you know, they, they won't talk. They, they keep writing back. You, you, you don't know who you're talking to. You're talking to Mr. X. There's no contact one-on-one. And it's all about profits. And they just keep talking about selling, selling, selling the land. And, you know, what we're saying to the banks that are considering selling these loans, they, they should retract from that. We've called on the minister to intervene mm. here and let the banks deal with the customers, as in restructure. Now, look at... But the argument is that they're doing what the banks won't do, that your rights have not changed. It's just that the banks haven't repossessed your property, and they've sold it onto a vulture fund that ends up doing that. Uh, And if you don't sell it onto a vulture fund, uh, the upshot is that the bank will end up repossessing it, which many would say that they should be doing. Actually not. Actually, what we find in many, many cases where we've helped farmers the banks have restructured the loans in mm. many many cases michael there is a way out here there is um, a way that the farmer can repay his loans and that's what many many farmers want to do uh, and when uh, loans have been restructured like that generally speaking they're not put into one of these portfolios and sold on well unfortunately what has happened is the, the banks haven't taken time to do that they've basically sold large segments of their loan book direct to vulture funds and told them to sort it out and unfortunately what we find is vulture funds have but what would be no interest. But, but what would be considered to be distressed loans Seamus? Well anyone that's in arrears basically mm. Mm. I mean yes but I mean as, as we say farmers are in a very volatile market at the moment weather-wise as well. We're not talking about people now that have turned their backs and paid nothing. Mm. We're talking about people that have been paying all they could afford to pay every year, that were very honourable maybe for 20 years or 30 years dealing with the bank. You must bear in mind, Michael, and a lot of your listeners must bear in mind, farmers are very honourable people and for generations they've been dealing with the same financial institution in the corner of the town. And a lot of these men now find that they've hit hard times 
and instead of the bank bringing them in and saying, right, can we restructure this? Look at every possibility. That's what we're saying. Don't be so quick to hand them over. Let that be the last chance saloon that they have to be handed over. Mm. But we find many, many farmers would be capable of repaying the loans if they got a chance. And bearing in mind as well, Michael, that, you know, farmers have offered maybe 50, 60 percent of their loans to clear these debts and they've been refused. And yet we believe the vulture funds are buying them for anything up to 20 percent. On, on, on the other hand, we hear of massive loans uh, running into millions uh, that have run into years of arrears, that there's been no payment for years, sometimes up to seven years, even longer on occasion, uh, and that there's been no effort to engage with the banks. Well, I mean, they're not the people, you know, and I said it from the outset here, Michael, we're dealing with genuine farmers here. And in the last two years, the ICSA, we passed a motion in our national executive that we would stand with genuine farmers that were making an effort. If any farmer contacts ICSA today and looks for help, the first thing they have to do is sit down with us and show us the effort that we're making. Because at the end of the day, we're not here to help people that have made no effort. We're here to help genuine farmers who in the last couple of years have fallen on a bit of hard times. And we believe there's a way of working these farmers out of the debt. Selling the land is certainly not an option. It shouldn't be an option unless it's a last chance saloon. And we believe that many, many farmers are being thrown to the wolves because nobody wants to take the time or make the effort to restructure it. But that is the starting point, is it not? That you believe that if it is one of these hopeless situations where people have just uh, ignored their responsibilities and have not paid or tried to pay or engage uh, with uh, the institution, uh, then there's the inevitable that the land is repossessed. Well, I mean, it's, it's inevitable. Like, you, you, there's nothing for nothing in this life, nor should anyone expect anything for nothing. Any farmer that went into a bank, the vast majority of farmers that went into a bank to expand, to, to, to buy a bit of land to make their own van viable or to put up a shed or something, they all done that in good faith. You know, these are all family men mostly with farm families. They're not going in, you know, flippant about it just to put themselves into bother. But unfortunately, Michael... We, especially in the beef industry, the grain industry is the same, the sheep. These men are working night and day and actually losing money year after year, but that's only going to be a short-term thing. That will turn around. And what we are saying is any farmer that has been very honourable for years shouldn't be thrown to the wolves the minute the things go bad. Sit down. We have sat down with many farmers and done a restructuring. Mm. Maybe in some cases, Michael, a farmer might have to sell a field or a site or two, and that's fair enough. If that needs to be done, we have no problem with that. But it has to be given the opportunity for us to see can we restructure it. A lot of these guys might be, in, you know, might have only six, seven years left on the loan. And why not extend that out to 20 again? And you know what I mean? If they're willing to work and willing to repay it, let them do so. At the end of the day, Michael, these vulture funds come in, they buy things cheap, they sell for big money. It's all about profit, profit, profit. And there's hell with the consequences as far as they're concerned. But we do not want to see rural Ireland decimated. That's what's going to happen if this carries on. A lot of farmers are very distressed. Mental health issues in farming at the moment is at a huge level. I'm getting calls, Michael, at 12 o'clock at night from fellas who can't sleep. They're literally burnt out with stress. They're not able to make proper decisions on the farm even because they're burnt out with stress. They're not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow. And we need to get a grip of this now before it Mm. turns into an epidemic. Uh, And if... The worst nightmare transpires and the land is repossessed and sold on. Well, then uh, the ICSA is suggesting resistance in terms of not working with whoever takes over the farm. Well, as far as we're concerned in the ICSA, 
as I've said to you already, repossession should be a less chance alone. It should be the very less thing considered. And we actually believe, Michael, from dealing with farmers and even farmers in listeners in your counties mm. that listening to you, a lot of these cases we were able to resolve them. All it took was a bit of common sense, a bit of give and take on both sides. As I say, we have no problem if a farmer has to sell a field or maybe two. If he has to, so be it. But at the end of the day, we need to sit down and discuss these things. And I can mm. assure you and your listeners that 80 or 90 percent of these cases could be solved. If but if, if it's down. not solved, Seamus, and if the land is sold and that sale, you believe, is an injustice, uh, are you saying that you'll make it impossible for anybody to work that land? Well, that's up to the neighbours. What we'd be saying is... We'd well, what's, what, what's the ICSA position on it? The ICSA position is if land has to be sold... So be it, but it has to be at the last stage. Everything else has to be looked at first. Farmers must be given every opportunity to restructure it. If they have the stock... or if But if the sale stock, is unjust, what about the purchaser? Will they be able to well, work I mean, the land? I'd be very hopeful that people wouldn't purchase it, to be honest with you. I know many, many farmers will not buy distressed land because it could be you, it could be me today and it could be certainly you tomorrow. That's the way it works. And if farmers don't buy it, and that's our message all along, if the vulture funds did not think there was a quick profit in farmland, they wouldn't be interested in farmland. So we need to send out the message that they must work with the farmers first. And God forbid, if the whole thing falls apart, so be it. But it has to be the last chance alone. There has to be every possibility and every avenues explored to keep the family on the family farm. Okay, thanks Seamus for that. Seamus Sherlock, Rural Development Chairman with the ICSA. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Personal Injuries Assessment Board published data for the first six months of this year, showing that on average €20,000 was paid out to victims of whiplash. This is 18581 because of the claim and €1,450. €56 Euro in special damages. It's in order to pay for the pain and suffering experience uh, to cover the cost of medical expenses and the loss of earnings. Uh, it's led to the front page headline of the Daily Mail today, a licence to steal money, and this follows on from comments made by ISME, the Irish SME Association, uh, which is uh, describing whiplash awards uh, as something that make Ireland a spoofer's paradise. Neil Macdonald is chief executive of ISME now. He's on the line and uh, good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. Uh, This is the first time uh, this information has been made uh, public. Uh, I I think uh, up to now people were estimating uh, that Whiplash was seeing awards of around 15,000. Are you surprised that it is as much as 20,000? No, we're not surprised, Michael. Um, the, one of the big difficulties we've had all along is that there isn't a great deal of data around the place. It's very hard to know what's going on. One of the things that Ju- Justice Nicholas Kearns, who chaired the uh, Personal Injuries Commission, has said is we, we need to see more data. And, and we believe it's really important for people like the Personal Injuries Assessment Board and for the central bank to be publishing this sort of information so we can see what's going on in claims we can see what's going on in court and in PIAB and we can see what's going on with the insurers And the problem I think is that it's difficult to disprove whiplash and I imagine that's why you say it has become a spoofer's paradise but do you recognise that there are legitimate claims as well? Uh, Absolutely Uh, and you know there, there are people who have 
uh, life-changing uh, soft tissue injuries. There's no question about that, but they're extremely rare. And the problem is, uh, you know, any time I come on to talk about this uh, publicly in any form, you, you, you hear members of the legal lobby coming on and say, oh, I met people whose lives have been changed or in their wheelchairs and all that sort of thing. That's not what we're talking about at all. We're talking about injuries that are at the very bottom of the end of the scale in terms of severity and yet they produce very high awards and at that lower end of severity and just to avoid any doubt Michael because this isn't my personal opinion it's not mm. ISME's opinion uh, you know we're quoting the Irish College of General Practitioners who say that in general at the lower end of um, of severity most uh, compensatable claims as they say are frankly spurious. All right, but how do you prove that that is uh, the case uh, or uh, be sure that it's not the case uh, because uh, there might be nothing wrong with somebody, they speak to a solicitor and suddenly they've got a a collar on them and I think people will anecdotally tell you stories like that, uh, a severe case of compensation sets in, Uh, but uh, how do you say to that person uh, you're spoofing? Well, with respect, we're we're not saying that at all. We're saying actually the reverse should apply. So it shouldn't be the case that that an innocent defendant like you or me driving a car and someone claims we hit them and caused them grievous injury, they should have to demonstrate injury to a much higher standard of proof than they do now. Effectively, what happens now is you just Mm. go on to uh, PIAB, you pay your 45 euros in line, you put in a doctor's report and and the, the... general practitioners have an issue with that themselves because they say it puts them in a very difficult position mm. and and effectively that's you're the on question. the question well, what does the gp do i mean you go to the doctor he says is that sorry you go oh it's killing me I, I know. So effectively what you have, and, uh, you know, again, this isn't, uh, this isn't our uh, personal point of view, uh, but you, you are compromising medical practitioners in this, especially with people whom they know for a long time. Uh, and, and you're asking someone that's had a relationship with, with their GP for, for a number of years to be told, no, there is nothing wrong with you. Mm. On the continent, that's actually what happens. You, you, you are not allowed to have the diagnosis of whip supplied by your own uh, doctor. You have to go to a specialist, a state-employed specialist who has no skin in the game. Mm. They're not, you're not paying their salary, so they don't care. They're not, you're, you're not handing over 50 or 60 euro. But there isn't a test, is there? I, I mean, uh, if somebody uh, acts in a way that they have whiplash, uh, you can't tell them that they don't. Uh, there actually are a number of uh, mechanisms for testing this. A which diagnostic I'm test. I'm not qualified to go into. A diagnostic um, test, though, that you could. Yes, there are. Okay. Yes, there are diagnostic really? uh, tests, and and there are MRIs, and there are other technologies uh, and diagnoses that will demonstrate the level of of actual seriousness. Again, our issue, Michael. Mm. I have to keep emphasising it because it keeps coming around. That this mm-hmm. we are not talking about the serious cases because a lot of the time they are really self-evident yeah. and mm-hmm. people have uh, a disablement in motion and things like that. We are talking ab- about you know people who have literally been involved in a fender bender some of the, some, mm. uh, on some occasions. People oh, I know. That's know what I'm saying. They speak to the solicitor and then they have a collar on, but you're not going to ask them to take, you're not going to pay for them to take a, an MRI test, are you, uh, for uh, an injury such as that? 
Well, you know, if there is an insistence at a point of self-diagnosis that I really do need it, well, mm. yes, you would, because the cost of the MRI will still be considerably less than even the most minor awards, which are coming out of five, six, seven thousand euro. But what we know is that the average award now in whiplash, according to PIAB, and of course, these are the cases settled by PIAB, these are only... 20% of cases. So there's five, four, four times more cases settled outside, either in court or settled out of court. So we're only seeing those ones uh, that are settled within PIAB and they're clocking in at nearly €19,000. So there's a very significant uh, um, financial inducement to, to make as serious a claim as you can. Uh, and even if uh, the claim... Uh, is one uh, that the award should be less. Yes, and the Personal Injuries Commission has said, now they, they've chosen their, Justice Cairns chose his language very carefully, saying he, he cannot explicitly say why our awards are so much higher than in any other jurisdiction. We constantly compare ourselves to the UK, which I personally find very frustrating because, believe it or not, the UK is one of the most generous jurisdictions in the world. A lot of these minor incidents of, of uh, whiplash are not even regarded as a medical diagnosis on the continent at all um, so our, our, our constant need to put a monetary value to something that in the old days you'd have been told go away and take two discipline uh, is personally I, I just don't understand it but nonetheless, uh, the Personal Injuries uh, Commission has said our awards are inexplicably high. There is no evidence, there's no reasoning behind why they are that high. And he has said that this is a matter that the Judicial Council needs to review as a matter of urgency. And we don't, unfortunately, have a Judicial Council yet. OK, and uh, I suppose, uh, just to conclude, the upshot of all of this is that everybody else pays. Uh, it goes into everybody else's insurance premium. All of us pay in our car insurance, our house insurance, um, the small business insurance, the cost you pay to the school to insure. But I also always need to emphasize, Michael, that there's a huge non-monetary cost. So the no-run policy in schoolyards, no ball play in the yard, ball play only in a supervised pitch at a playing field supervised by a PE teacher. These are all the non-financial costs of this, and they're really, really severely limiting and impacting our society, and we're desperate to do something about it as soon as we can. Okay, thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Neil MacDonald is uh, the Chief Executive of ISME. That's uh, the Irish SME Association. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and to everybody listening in. Not surprising, some response already to Brexit and the concern about the backstop. Fran says, let the North hold a referendum on a united Ireland. That will solve that part. Peter from Drogheda believes that the British are playing a very clever game. They are continually changing the goalposts, he believes. And we have to ask ourselves, Michael, can we trust them in relation 
to the backstop. Who, the British? Yes. <laughs> well, I don't know what it, what there is to trust. They have to tell us what they're thinking first. And speaking of the backstop, mm. Michael, we got a text from PJ who's saying, Michael, can you explain for me and my friends what is a backstop? Well, as you know, uh, Britain or the United Kingdom, if you prefer, is uh, leaving uh, the European Union and with that it'll see uh, the United Kingdom leave uh, the single market and the customs union. The backstop is uh, to put in place a, a system that would mean there would be no need for a hard border with customs posts and uh, the restrictions that are involved in all of that by having a, a system in place where to all intents and purposes Northern Ireland Ireland would stay in the customs union. So for trading purposes, you could say uh, Northern Ireland would stay in Europe, uh, but the rest of the United Kingdom would leave. Uh, And that is if a solution cannot be found for the border. And the backstop, they are saying, that's what the backstop is. They're saying they hope they never need to use the backstop. Uh, But if they do use the backstop, that would be put in place unless or until, and you'll hear politicians saying unless or until uh, in all of these interviews, uh, a solution to the border can be found. Okay, well, hope hopefully that will explain mm, it to uh, PJ because I'm sure he's not yeah. the only one. And, and, and that means that there would never be a border, you see, because it's unless yes. or until a solution could be found. But the British are saying, well, could we do it in three months uh, yes. or do it for three months? No, but then that what do you do in three months? Do you put a yes. border in place? Yes. So, so that's, that's the what the argument. concern yeah. is mm. at the moment, is this yeah. kind of time that they're suggesting. Yeah, well, that's it. The idea is uh, that uh, there won't be a border because there'll be some other way of doing, of it. doing it. Nobody knows how to answer that. But if, if there is no answer, uh, you kind of stay in Europe for trading purposes, yes. let's say. So uh, that's uh, where uh, the unionists have a problem because if that's right. Britain is leaving, they don't want to be different than the rest of Britain. Anne got in touch and Anne feels that Brexit is going to be the real test for the Taoiseach. She says that he needs to hold his position and make sure that this backstop is Mm. in place and that there will be absolutely no hard border at any time. Yeah, well, I don't think the Taoiseach has changed his position. I think uh, he has said that he's open to a review. In other words, in three months or whether it's six months or whenever they agree to have a review, if there's to be a review, you can sit down and go, Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. How's it going? Oh, it's going terrible. Okay, well, sure it's going terrible then or it's going great okay well sure it's going great Uh, but that you would not remove the backstop unless or until a solution is found for the border Jack from Cullen was listening into your interview with Matt Carty and he says isn't it amazing how much Sinn Féin now love the EU when we voted on common market entry back then Sinn Féin he says were against that Hmm. So I suppose things change. (laughs) 
well, I'm not sure that they do change, uh, but uh, I think uh, Matt Carthy and uh, indeed other Sinn Féin representatives uh, would uh, agree that they have been Europe uh, sceptics uh, all along uh, and that uh, they still have many issues uh, with uh, how the European Union uh, is uh, working. Um, but uh, in terms of Brexit, uh, will they believe uh, that Northern Ireland uh, shouldn't uh, be uh, different uh, as part of the United Kingdom uh, in the way that, uh, I suppose, would mean that there'd be a hard border again on this island? Well, John says the North will not be for sale the same as the Republic is to Germany if that's what Europe is about, mm. says John. OK, well, I'm not sure what that means, but OK. Mm. Uh, moving from that then to Vulture Funds uh, and your interview with Seamus Sherlock, Martin phoned in and says, Michael, you don't seem to have a lot of sympathy for people who find their loans handed over to a Vulture Fund. You clearly have never been in that position. There are many who have tried to pay back their loans and are doing their best, but despite that, their loans were sold on without even their knowledge. I don't know why you appear at least to be on the side of these vultures, says Martin. All right. Well, thanks for that, Martin. Let's uh, go to that survey that we were hearing about in uh, the headlines and how 27% of us believe uh, that non-smokers who get lung cancer uh, should have their treatment prioritised over smokers who get lung cancer. This is part of an awareness campaign uh, that the Marie Keating Foundation is launching called I Am Lung Cancer. And we're joined by Liz Yates, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of the Marie Keating Foundation. Good morning to you, Liz, and thanks for joining us. Uh, And you're describing this as a, a, a stigma that is attached to getting lung cancer. That's right, uh, Michael. We had anecdotally heard about stories of of people who were pretending that they had different uh, other types of cancer because they felt that they were going to be judged or blamed when they told people that they had uh, lung cancer. And obviously, 90% of lung cancer diagnoses are associated with smoking. Uh, You know, the Marie Keating Foundation obviously is... is encouraging people to give up smoking or to stop smoking. Um, But this campaign is about challenging those stigmas. And when somebody is diagnosed with with lung cancer, we feel they deserve our support and our empathy and they don't deserve prejudgment or, or, uh, you know, stereotypes um, that often come associated with this type of cancer in particular. Are they judged by the health service or health service professionals? I mean, people might choose to smoke, but they don't choose to get cancer. Yeah, no. Um, well, about a 30% of the public who we interviewed in our research um, agreed that there was a stigma in relation to um, lung cancer patients in particular. Um we are doing some patient research at the moment as well, and we will have the results of that at the end of this month, whereby we are ex- examining patients' perceptions themselves. But we know that lung cancer patients particularly are very slow to go to the doctor if they have a symptom. And the, as a result of that, most lung cancer patients are diagnosed at stage four, which is a very late stage. And unfortunately, often it's too late. And as a result of that, um, more people die from lung cancer than of any other type of cancer in Ireland. Um, Because the first time they're seen is at stage four, is it? 
That's right. Because right. Mm. often, you know, the, the fact that they know they are going to be judged by their GP mm. or by their healthcare professional, um, they're slow. They, they, they might have a cough, but they won't necessarily go and do anything about it. And mm. um, our research also indicated quite shockingly that um, few people know what the signs and symptoms of lung cancer are. And this is um, really at uh, the root of all this. It's a way of bringing about awareness and making people understand uh, that they're at risk and what those symptoms are. A cough, you said, a persistent cough uh, should require treatment. Uh, but at, at what stage? I mean, are you talking about somebody who's been coughing for a week or two or for several months? Well, if, you, if you're coughing for more than three weeks, we would definitely say you should go, go and get that checked. I mean, mm. less than 16% of adults uh, claim to know what the signs and symptoms of lung cancer are. So just to very briefly, Michael, mm. uh, it is that persistent cough is a really uh, can be a telltale tale, whether you're a smoker or not. Yeah. Um, shortness of breath or breathlessness. You know, if you're out mowing the garden and you find suddenly, you know, you're you're out of breath. That's and you know you may have done it the previous year and without a bother. So mm. just recognizing those changes, and um, if there's any weight loss that might be unexplained. Um, fatigue and kind of general flu-like symptoms and then also coughing and blood is also a, a real sign and um, that something might be amiss. So while, you know, they're kind of general symptoms, but particularly you have more, if you have more than one of those, we would always urge you just go to your GP. It might just be a flu or a bad mm. dose of the flu, but, you know, it could be the signs of something sinister. And the research shows that if you can... If, you're, if your lung cancer is detected at stage one or stage two, the chances of a positive outcome with the new treatments that are now available are much stronger. So please don't wait and leave it to, you know, to till it's too late, unfortunately, to go to your doctor. Okay, and uh, obviously uh, we don't want to scare people. If people are feeling fatigued, it doesn't mean they have lung cancer, uh, but uh, no harm having it checked out uh, and uh, to be aware, uh, as you say, uh, that's the persistent cough, the shortness of breath, weight loss, fatigue and coughing up of blood, but not necessarily all five. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us this morning. Liz Yates is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of uh, the Marie Keating Foundation. Now let's go back to you and some more of your thoughts. Uh, and what else have you got for us, yes, Marie? Yes, Michael, I want to go back to yesterday, if I can, and your comments in relation to the trolley situation and Our Lady of Lords Hospital. Mm. Loretta rang in um, after those comments and she's a regular listener to the show, loves the programme and she just wanted to let you know that it's not all, I suppose, sweetness and light mm. there all the time. She says that yesterday, so th- she rang yesterday, mm. so the day before uh, a family member had been brought into Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital with pneumonia, was very sick, left on a trolley mm. overnight because there was no bed, wasn't the only one on a trolley mm. and was waiting yesterday to be moved to the Beaumont mm-hmm. Uh, because uh, the man is also a diabetic and unfortunately was very sick. So she just wants you to let you know that this is still happening oh, and to keep yeah. you up mm-hmm. to date. Yeah, yeah no, and, and, and we do see the figures. Uh, uh, I think it is uh, the day that the family member would have gone in, there were seven people on trolleys, if I ever remember the figure correctly, uh, because I do make a, a point of looking at them every day because I know that it's a, a dreadful situation for anybody to find themselves in and we've seen the figures soar and go through the roof on occasion. Seven people on trolleys in any of the hospitals in this country in this day and age unfortunately 
is a very positive figure, uh, as bad as it is. Uh, it did increase yesterday. There were 14 people, I think, if I remember correctly again, and I don't have the figures in front of me, but offhand, I think there were 14 people on trolleys yesterday. Uh, and when I say that's positive, uh, that's in relation to figures that we've seen, which would have been consistently at 20 on trolleys and very rarely below it, uh, quite often at 30, sometimes at 40, and on occasion uh, at 50 people on trolleys. So relatively speaking, the problem has been solved to a large degree and quite often we see no people on trolleys in the Lord's Hospital. Mm, I suppose the point Loretta was making was even if it's one person that happens Mm. to be you or a member of your family it's not a nice situation to be in. Oh of course, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, Just also we had a text in from, as he calls himself, the original John from Navin in relation to Deputy Paddy Tobin's stance uh, regarding the abortion referendum and his subsequent suspension from the Sinn Féin party. He says I would like to congratulate Paddy Tobin for standing up for his principles against the Sinn Féin leadership. I personally regard Padder as the only decent member. It took great courage and it is very unusual to find a politician who would be so brave to defy, defy, defy the clearly undemocratic commands of any party leadership. Well, Michael, the abortion referendum passed with a resounding yes. And what did you get? People cheering in the streets, waving yes flags like they had won a great victory. As the old saying goes, be careful what you wish for. Okay, well, I, I think uh, people did think it was a, a great victory for women's health care and uh, people's rights. Uh, but uh, who's the other John from Navin? We we do have we actually have <laughs> yeah, a few Johns from Navin okay. who call who call oh, in right, regularly. Yeah, yeah. So he's the original now. I've I've no proof of that, but that's what he says okay, in his text. Very good. Thanks, John. <laughs> And thanks so we'll to everybody. Okay, thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us today as well. Thanks for that matter, Marie. Now, if you'd like to add to what's being said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is eighteen fifty seven one five nine five eight. Michael Reed on LMFM. Bad and all as it is uh, to be treated on a trolley, there is, first of all, far less chance of it happening now than would have been the case previously in Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital, as we were discussing a a moment ago. But you'd be far better off being treated on a trolley in the Lourdes, it would seem, uh, than ending up in some place like Our Lady's Hospital in Navin. As you know, the Small Hospitals Network report a long time I recommended that uh, the A&D be closed down and with good reason. In fact, uh, it's the best example of the need to remove full A&D services from a hospital because it gets very few presentations overnight. At the same time, it's staffed 24-7, relying on expensive locums. A complete waste of public money, not an emergency department that I personally would have a wish to be taken to. Now, they're not my words. Uh, They're the words of Tony O'Brien, the former director general of the HSE, who resigned in May and was speaking with the Sunday Business Post uh, in the weekend uh, just gone. Uh, The comments have caused uh, some concern. Uh, I'm not sure why, uh, but we're joined by some local councillors, Darren O'Rourke of Sinn Féin Féin and independent Wayne Ford. Wayne Ford, uh, you've uh, written to the HSE asking for them uh, to recommit to services remaining in place. Yes, good morning Michael. Uh, I, I work, uh, uh, I meet the HSE uh, once a month, uh, all the managers uh, down in the, uh, in Kells and uh, I've, di- I've a direct contact with all the managers that made the, the, the top decisions. They say to me uh, off the record 
that it's a political decision what are the future of acute emergency services at Our Lady's Hospital in Avon will be retained or not. I have been saying this for years, that's a political decision. People are finally beginning to realise this now. And the greatest threat to Our Lady's Hospital in, in Navin 24-7 going forward is from Fina, Fina Gael and Fina Fall. And uh, it's, a, it's plain and simple. If the emergency department is downgraded in any way, uh, I'll be fully blaming uh, Fina Gael and Fina Fall. Uh, it'll be totally their fault. Right, and why? what would be the political gain for them to do that? Why, why, why would they do that for political reasons? Surely be to God, uh, the, uh, if it was a political decision, you'd have a hospital on every corner of every street in the country. No, oh, Michael, uh, Michael and, and, and I didn't like the way you were commenting there on Navin, uh, about Navin. Uh, I know you were saying to our Tony O'Brien's uh, uh, words, but... Uh, at the end of the day, they are absolutely disgraceful remarks. Uh, he was saying. No, no, no. You can talk about that, Mum. Why? Why would Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael want to close the hospital in Avon? Absolutely. Why though? Absolutely. Well, well, I'm always saying that. Why? I'm always saying, I know, but I'm asking you yeah. why. Why? Yeah. The the closer I have a commitment from the HSC that all acute emergency services are safe until July the first. 2019, which is fantastic news. That's eight months away. Mm. And eight well, that's, months, that's because there's nowhere else. Just eight, eight months closer to a general yeah. election. And do you think uh, any of the Fianna Fáilers or Fingalers will, will uh, try and... Uh, I don't know. Uh, ...will allow the hate? I don't, I don't, I just, I actually just don't understand what you're saying. Uh, and that's why I keep asking you the yeah, same question. Like, wh- wh- why do they want to close the hospital down? Well, they're trying to close us since, since nineteen seventy-two, Michael. I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure you remember that. Uh, they're trying to close us since nineteen seventy-two, and the great people in Mead have always stood up to the HSE and mm. formerly the North Eastern Health Board. Mm. And we have a fully functional uh, casualty. Uh, five years ago, when I was elected uh, to Mead County Council, that was my uh, top priority, and I, I honestly. Uh, say this I still don't I, understand I, I mean you said that for political reasons they want to close it down it would seem a very unpopular decision locally yeah but but yeah I, I know what you're saying Michael but uh, what I'm trying to say to you is that it's, it's at the end of the day it's a political decision whether the emergency department in Navin 24-7 uh, it's in Gales and Vida Falls hands uh, if if they if they close the hospital, and uh, look what happened to Fianna Fáil in two thousand and eleven mm. uh, when they wouldn't give a commitment. They lost all of their TDs in Mead, uh, and rightly so. And Finn Gale came in and they told lies. They told lies to the people living in Mead, saying that there was going to be a regional hospital built. By the year 2000. Well, it, di- it didn't happen. I'm sure nobody told lies, but okay. But no, of course they told lies. Well, they, I'm sure. I'm sure they didn't tell. Yeah, well, I'm sure they didn't tell lies. Uh, Darren O'Rourke, uh, do you believe uh, that there's uh, political gain in closing down hospitals? Well, I certainly believe, Michael, that it's it's a political uh, arena, um, and you can have that with a big P or a small P, mm. and it doesn't just apply to political parties. There is medical politics, there are vested interests right across the board in relation to this and and you could see from Tony O'Brien's interview that it was completely political, it was completely loaded um, 
he was presenting himself as a, a you know completely independent uh, public civil servant they are just acting in the, well, the there interest is a of completely the independent medical report on small hospitals such as Navin and it says close the A&D no, but you see let's let's just ask the question of how completely independent is that now because because if you look at the international example and if you look at even Irish evidence so so close the A&E in in Navan like you've closed the A&E in Ennis and in Roscommon mm. and in Nina and what has happened and in Dundalk and in Dundalk yeah. and in Monaghan mm. and, and what has happened in those areas well you've driven people literally to emergency departments that are overcrowded. Yeah, so well, that was because I, it, it was done badly. Uh, they've actually caught up in Loud, and the emergency department in Drogheda is one of the most efficient in the country now. But but they most certainly haven't caught up in in Limerick or no, Cork. and or that's Cork. why they're not doing it in Navin, because there's nowhere to send people. No, and the nowhere to send people is the emergency department. Because, let's be clear, are, are we making the case here that we have too much capacity in our emergency, emergency departments? Yes. That's why we have, we have too much capacity in our emergency departments, yet we have people sitting on trolleys in them. So, so that, that doesn't add up to me, because the, the truth of the matter is, and, and this, this has been proven, there's a major study in Ireland called the SIREN study, there's a major study in Britain called the CLOSED study. They looked at what mm. the outcomes were, So, and, and other people have looked at what are the actual drivers here. And, and you're making the case, as the HSE have made mm. the case, oh no, it's about safety, it's about quality. Yeah, but I mean, the, rea- the reality is, if you were going to an emergency department yourself, or taking somebody you loved to an emergency department tonight, in your car, let's say, without calling an ambulance... So that you would decide where to go to, you would go to Drogheda, would you not, instead of Navin, given the view of the experts on this? No, no, it's nothing to do with the view of the experts, to to be honest, Michael. Here's the the reality. That that you'd be seen by a part-time junior doctor uh, who hasn't got the skills or the equipment to deal with your problem. And and why doesn't he? Because a decision has Because it's a small hospital unfit for purpose. no, 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 excuse me, excuse me. Navin ED can be whatever we want it to be. Navin ED is the way it is because certain people want it to be that way. They want to run it down. They want a lack of resources in it. So if you look again at international best mm. evidence in relation, the Nuffield Trust in Britain in the last three weeks have published a document rethinking smaller hospitals and essentially making those points that if we want these hospitals to be something else, we can make them something else. If mm. we want them to... But, but the driver has to be in the public interest. Instead, what do we have? The driver is here. The interests of consultant hospital doctors who won't go and live in Navan, who won't go and live in the regions, who want, you know, to, to a mixture of public mm. and private. So, so I have a fundamental problem, and Sinn Féin has a fundamental problem with the way hospital planning is done in this country. Well, so, so, so by all means... The medical all means, expertise is to centralise services so that you're seen by people who have the experience and the knowledge and the equipment and the wherewithal to treat you. Michael, you're, you're, you're taken for a bad one. This is contested territory. So, so the, the, the international best practice in relation to cancer services, absolutely, if they are proof positive, don't presume that it applies to all other specialties because mm. it doesn't. That's the reality. How, how can you say it makes absolutely no sense? You saw the example, you saw Primetime probably a number of weeks ago in relation to trauma care down in the, in the southeast. It's perfectly 
obvious to everybody and the people in Navan that if you take acute emergency services away from them, literally physically remove them and, and, and don't have an ambulance service to get them somewhere else, it, it increases risk. Wayne uh, Ford, would you take somebody you love to Navan or to Drogheda tonight uh, in an emergency situation, given how the experts say Navan isn't safe? And who's these experts, Michael? <laughs> the the um, medical experts. Tony O'Brien or the consultancy group that produced oh, well, the Small was, Hospital uh, Network uh, report. Tony O'Brien uh, The head of the HSE, yes, the former yeah, head of the HSE. Yeah, he obviously a very disgruntled, disgruntled former. Okay, well the independent Small Hospital Network report. Yeah, absolutely. That, that is gone out the window. Uh, absolutely out the window. Charlie Flanagan uh, is getting Portleash Hospital kept open. Uh, a political decision. Uh, there was two left on the, on the list, Port Leisha and this uh, 13 hospitals that were going to be reduced. And the last two were Port Leash and Navan. Uh, S- Simon Harris has come out and committed that uh, the future uh, of the A&E uh, and 24-7 down at Port Leash, that's guaranteed. And uh, we have a commitment uh, that... Uh, our services are safe until July the 1st, 2019. And I'd be working very hard, along with the likes of Darren, uh, to make sure that uh, we uh, that, uh, acute emergency services are not only just retained in the hospital, that are, and that are actually enhanced. And we want to see more trauma patients coming back and having uh, elective uh, patients uh, coming in to have uh, 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 orthopedic operations okay. and, and doctors to just, treat just them Michael just one mm-hmm. final point we have five acres of land adjacent to Our Lady's okay. Hospital in Navan yep. no. the old Meath County Council yard okay. and that would be an ideal uh, spot to, for the hospital to be expanded okay. but the simple fact in 2030 there's going to be a population in County Mead of 250,000. All right, I'm over time. I have to leave it there, Wayne. Thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us, both of you. Uh, Independent Councillor Wayne Ford and Sinn Féin Councillor Darren O'Rourke. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, a change uh, to alcohol laws come into force uh, from uh, next week. Not all of uh, the sections of uh, the Public Health Alcohol Bill, which took forever and a day, almost three years going through the Oireachtas, will come into force. There will be some time before minimum pricing is introduced, but uh, there will be restrictions on advertising and some other issues, such as how shops display alcohol and physical barriers will have to be put in place in certain uh, locations uh, where alcohol isn't uh, the only product on sale. Tara Buckley is uh, the Director General of Orgy Data and On The Line. Good morning, Tara, and thanks for joining us. Uh, Is this a change that we're going to notice? Oh, most definitely you will notice, um, Michael. The, The thing is, the Minister has signed the regulations yesterday, so there's two years before Uh, shops have to comply. They've given them two years to get themselves sorted out. So effectively, mixed traders are people who sell uh, convenience and grocery goods and alcohol. Some would have a wine license, some wine and beer, and some would have wine, beer and spirits licenses. 
And depending on the size of your store, there's three options in this legislation and to comply with it. And the, uh, the three options are, one, the, you could sell alcohol from one area in the shop that's separated from the rest of the store and there has to be a barrier that's 1.2 metres high with, a, with an entrance through the barrier, so yeah. a, a specific entrance. Um, the other choice for, for a, a retailer, maybe if they're a smaller uh, shop and they don't, can't do that over in separately, they can put the alcohol into one area and where it's in units where the alcohol is not visible up to 1.5 metres high. So you'd have to have some type of um, uh, film on the, on the glass doors or some type of um, opaque doors so that people can't see the alcohol up to 1.5 metres high. And then for the smallest shops, because some shops maybe only have a wine licence, wouldn't have a lot of alcohol in the store, they can sell alcohol from a maximum of three, three units and those units can be, uh, the, the, the tallest they can be is 2.2 metres high and the widest they can be is one metre wide. So they don't have to have any doors in them. Mm. And all retailers can sell alcohol from behind a closed container behind the counter. So you will be able to have alcohol in a closed container behind the counter for sale. And you would be able to say on the door of the, 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 uh, the, the, the unit that it has something in it but you can't put brand names up Oh, relatively strict regulations far stricter than what we've been used to uh, but not as strict as originally proposed well I mean um, before this legislation was even put in place the, um, the mixed traders and certainly Orgy Data had been involved. We had done a lot of work with the, the Department of um, Health and with the Revenue Commissioners um, and we had worked on responsible retailing of alcohol. So people will have got used to alcohol being in one area of the store. Um, we also stopped all promotion of alcohol um, in other areas of the store. There's no, um, we, we haven't been allowed to, um, what they would call a cross merchandise. So you can't put alcohol in other parts of the store where you st- sell other products. Mm. So I think customers will have got used to alcohol being in the one area of the store. The big difference for them in two years time will be there will have to be that physical barrier you know, between the alcohol products and the rest of the store. But there won't be curtains or construction costs for your members as such. Well, Michael, there will be, there most definitely will be putting up barriers and um, putting in units with, with, uh, with non-visibility up to mm. 1.5 metre high will most definitely create construction costs. Sure, and, but uh, somewhat change. different than a wall, if you know what I mean. Yeah, different mm. than a wall. And also, I suppose, this is more realistic um, a lot of um, toing and froing was done on this issue because the initial proposal really wasn't, it just wasn't workable mm. in, in shops. And also, you know, the other issue that people sometimes forget is that, you know, an awful lot of our members, we have to be very cognizant of safety and the, you know, units and handles and doors and things like that in a store that we have to make sure that there's no opportunities where people might hurt themselves or slip or fall or trip or catch their fingers. Uh, and security so, too, I imagine. Uh, I mean, if the alcohol is out of sight, so is uh, somebody if uh, you don't have staff in that particular part of the shop. Absolutely. We, and we would obviously to this, we had to take into account CCTV cameras. Mm. Every shop today has to have an awful lot of CCTV cameras to protect their staff. Um, protect their, their uh, protect their customers and um, to ensure security and health and safety is all followed and complied with. Okay, but this is workable, is it? No, we believe this is workable. I mean, obviously, yeah. mm. we we did ask for time for it to be implemented. So the minister gave two years. So shops now have two years to 
come up with their proposals and and obviously even having enough you know um, shop fitting companies and people able to do these make these changes so we we you know we think we will need the two years for it all to be put in place and implemented um and then there are the obviously the other issue that will affect our members but it hasn't been brought into play yet is minimum unit pricing so you know that's something that um we obviously too we we supported it and we do support it but the one thing we had asked was that the don't introduce it on our own introduce it when northern ireland introduces it because effectively all it would have done was push people to go up uh, cross border shopping and that's just not in the interest of of irish shops and local shops and local communities because we you know if you want to have a local shop you have to support it um and uh we we would we would have been concerned if we had gone ahead on our own with minimum unit pricing. You know we support mm-hmm. it, um, but we we didn't think we should do it on our own. So I think the government, uh, the minister, made a, a commitment that he would work and make sure it came in at the same time as Northern Ireland. So I think that's what the plan is. So he will have to um, he'll have to go back and, and sign in a regulation when they decide to introduce that. Okay, thank you indeed. Tara Buckley is uh, Orgy Data's uh, Director General. Now, one in three women in this country experience some form of abuse in their lifetime. Of the women who have been abused, 79% of them do not report it. That means every time an incident of violence or abuse is reported, four incidents go unreported. This was highlighted in the Irish Independent last week by Sharon O'Halloran who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Safe Ireland and comes on foot of uh, the Safe Ireland World Summit which offered nine solutions particularly relevant to this country in preventing violence against women. It's in relation to nine lives that she said that they knew about at the time that had been affected directly by violence reported over the two weeks previous. Lisa Marmion is Services Development Manager with Safe Ireland and Lisa, it's clear that the reality of life in this country today for a lot of women has not changed and that there is this ongoing problem. Absolutely, Michael. Uh, good morning. Um, we, we had the Safe World Summit um, that Sharon wrote about um, a couple of weeks ago uh, in the Mansion House and it was the, the largest gender-based violence conference in Europe this year um, attended by 35 global leaders and 500 delegates and it gave us all the opportunity to focus on where it needs to be different because it can be different um, it's very true what you've said there Michael around the change or lack of change um, almost every day we're hearing about women and children who are experiencing abuse in where should be the most safe place in the world within their relationships and losing their lives. Um, so, you know, it's important that crucially we, we speak about this issue more than we already are. Um, some of the other solutions that were highlighted by the, the leaders were, you know, political priority. Um, of our 218 members of the Oireachtas, four were in attendance at the Safe World Summit. Mm. Uh, one of them, uh, the Minister for Children. Absolutely. Uh, Minister Sapone spoke about the um, groundbreaking legislation, the Domestic Violence Act 2018. But crucially, it, it needs to be commenced quickly. It needs to be resourced for it to realise its full potential. And Minister Sapone, obviously female, as were the other three Oireachtas members who attended. Uh, and I, I think uh, that uh, there 
is probably a, a gender divide uh, that quite often you're talking about gender inequality and gender-based violence, uh, but does that lead uh, to a divide in thinking between the genders? Yes, absolutely, Michael. And, you know, there is great leadership on this issue from men. We saw that at the summit. Luke and Ryan Hart spoke about their experience of losing their mum, their sister, um, at the hands of their father. Um, Bruce Shapiro uh, spoke at length about media reporting of, of domestic violence and how that has a part to play in how we understand this issue. Um, you know, uh, Marcia Scott, who is the CEO of Scottish Women's Aid, uh, spoke about the transformative experience that they have had when they've had political leadership across genders. So I suppose really, Michael, I would say it's not a women and children's issue solely. It's all of our issues. It's something that affects us all and it's going to take us all to make a difference. There's a place for everybody in this issue. Indeed, uh, Sharon uh, in her article wrote uh, about Kathleen Chada, uh, who will be known to many of our listeners uh, after losing her boys, Owen and Rory, uh, to their father uh, and how that was uh, treated by the courts. Absolutely. Um, Kathleen speaks about how not all life sentences are served in prison. And for her, this is a life sentence, the loss of her two boys. Um, she spoke at length about how um, sentencing needs to be different and um, how we need to be more mindful of victims those the hundreds and thousands of family survivors of this type of violence um, and she is part of a group called save that are sentencing and victim equality and they are pushing for uh, the needs of victims to be prioritized in this um, she's she has spoken in the past about how her husband is now eligible for parole in two years and in order for that not to happen, she needs to write and, and give her reasons as to why it's not, um, it, it's, it's not appropriate for him to be living his life outside of, of the confines of, of prison. Um, so there are pressures on victims all the time, Michael. Mm. Uh, yeah. And that legal aspect is an unfortunate part of it. Uh, and while steps can be taken in that respect, there's also the impact individually. And uh, there's a suggestion of a national recovery programme. Absolutely, Michael. There were many trauma specialists there who were very clear about we need a resourced national um, trauma programme. You know, we need to make sure that those who are living with us now um, have the opportunity to recover, um, have the opportunity for generations to come to live violence-free. So it makes sense. It really makes sense to me to invest in this issue now, Michael, um, rather than our future generations. Okay, Lisa, we have to leave it there, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Lisa Marmion, Services uh, Development Manager with Safe Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now we're just uh, waiting for the guards to arrive for this week's uh, crime desk, uh, but in uh, the few minutes that we've left, actually, at this stage, uh, let's uh, go back to some more of your thoughts and comments. Uh, looks like uh, you've quite a, a bit there in front I of do, you, Michael. Well, Marie. Yeah, yeah, Very yeah. busy there yeah. for the last part of the show. Uh, we had if Catherine phoned in just in relation to the Whiplash Awards that you were speaking mm. about, uh, Tunian McDonald of um, Ismay. She says that she got Whiplash 19 years ago and it's a horrible sensation 
she was in her car and she thought a herd of elephants came on top of the car. She says the seatbelt often does more damage. The back of the car was badly damaged and she can still feel the hurt from the belt. It really leaves you very sore or pulls you back and gives your neck a jerk. She understands why people are in pain when they do suffer whiplash. It's a horrible thing and you need to go through this experience to really understand it. Okay. Yeah, says well, Catherine. I think anybody who has will know that it is very painful. Another listener was in touch on the same topic and says that the system is being played in relation to whiplash awards and it needs to be dealt with. Okay, thanks uh, for that, Marie. Uh, time now, as is usual, around this time on a, a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. We're joined uh, this week by Sergeant Rodney Hodgkinson of Laytown Garda Station. Uh, just a, a couple of minutes uh, to uh, get through one or two of these, and we've uh, a number of burglaries. The first in Duleek. Yes, Michael. Um, uh, can I get you a mic there, please, Rodney? Sorry, Thank Michael. Yeah. Sorry. Mm-hmm. On Tuesday night, or Tuesday morning last, the 30th of October, about 4 a.m., a house was entered at Stonyford um, Green Housing Estate in Dulig, Um and in that burglary they took the keys of the car and the car is still, still outstanding it's a grey Audi A6 estate, the registration number is 171 MH3679 um, some of your listeners Michael might have seen this parked up or in fact someone changing plates or whatever else on it mm. so that's Stonyford um, Estate last Tuesday the 30th of October at 4am. Okay, as I say, a number of burglaries, the next in Navin. Yes, similar type burglary, Michael, the house entered again during the night at 4am on Saturday morning last, the 3rd of November. Um, again, in this one we had stolen um, uh, the keys of a blue Volkswagen Tigan uh, 12MH1117. That's 12MH1117, a blue Volkswagen Tigan. Again, similar, maybe parked up or someone may have noticed plates being changed on a blue Tigan. Okay, uh, another burglary, this one in Slane? Yes, um, this happened, Michael, on Friday evening last at quarter past five, the 2nd of November. Uh, two males entered a house at Moortown Slane. Uh, the occupant was there and they ran off. They were in a blue, what is described as a blue, a navy blue uh, saloon car. Someone may have seen it acting suspicious in the area on Friday or on the days before. So that's a blue uh, in the navy blue saloon car. Okay, uh, Dundalk for the next burglary. Uh, Michael, yes again, Friday evening last the 2nd of November, between a quarter past eight and a quarter to ten, a house was entered as uh, Fatima Park in Dundalk. Uh, jewellery stolen. Jewellery stolen. Um, this included a... Um, Sorry, uh, a ring um, which had the initials on the inside MMCA. So it's MMACA. So if anyone's offered that for sale or noticed anything unusual in mm. Fatima Park last Friday evening, uh, the Guardian Dundalk, please. Okay, that could be quite distinctive. Uh, yes. Draw the next. Yes, another burglary, unfortunately, Michael. Um, again, very um, on Sunday, the 4th of November, between 20 to 6 and Quarter to six, so very uh, specified time span. Ashfield in the Drogheda. Again, we had the ring stolen. It is described as a, an engagement ring, um, a gold band with a cluster of approximately 20 diamonds and a wedding ring. These may be offered for sale, and it's the Drogheda Gardaí. And again, it's uh, Sunday evening last between 20 to 6 and a quarter to 6 in Ashfield. Okay, and we'll conclude with uh, another burglary. Yeah, um, Mine Alvey, um, Summerhill in Trim. Um, on Thursday the 1st be- between half 7 in the morning about 7pm a uh, house was entered um, 
alarm box was damaged on the outside of the house. Someone may have noticed uh, what they thought was workmen or whatever. And uh, we had checked books, which may be just uh, thrown away because they're not much good to anyone, and a small white safe uh, taken in this burglary. Okay, well, given the amount of burglaries this week, uh, perhaps there's food for thought for all of us uh, to think about home security. Thank you indeed, Sergeant Rodney Hodgkinson of Laytown Garda Station. And uh, we'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. That's where we have to leave you for today, though, because our time has run out on us once again. Remember, there'll be a podcast of today's programme available on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon. Thanks to Marie Kearns uh, for producing and uh, Chris Murray in the control term. I'm Michael. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning, 9am, right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie